The text for the sermon this morning is taken from the gospel according to Luke, Luke 22, the verses 31 through 34. Luke 22, beginning at verse 31, here we read the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Then after the proclamation of God's word, our initial response will be the singing of Psalm 27, the stanzas 3 and 6. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the time came closer for the Son of God to face the horrors of the cross and all the suffering that it would entail, there were many different events that were taking place. The Lord Jesus had spent that last evening in the upper room with his disciples. He celebrated the Passover with them. He instituted the Lord's Supper. And he'd given the disciples instruction about the fact that he was about to leave and about what would happen after he was gone. Now, when you look at all four of the gospel accounts, there's a lot that's packed into just one evening. Unfortunately, not all of it was pleasant to deal with. Also on that evening, the Lord had called out the disciple who was to betray him, He made it clear through his words the seriousness of such an action. But not only was there a disciple who was going to betray the Son of God over to the enemies, there was also a disciple who would deny him three times. And this too is something that the Lord Jesus speaks openly about, as we read in the verses of our text. However, he speaks about this eventual denial in a very unique way. The fact that Peter was going to deny his master, it's something that's recorded for us in all four of the Gospels, and most of these, most of these accounts contain the same basic information as well. But it's Luke who presents this account from a slightly different angle when compared to the others. Even though we know about the fact that Peter denied the Lord Jesus and that Christ foretold that he would do so, there's something else we have to consider. And that's the role Satan plays leading up to the final suffering and death of the Son of God. In fact, Luke makes it clear throughout chapter 22 that on this last night before Christ went to the cross, Satan was increasingly active. He was more and more exerting all the influence he possibly could It starts with Judas Iscariot, 
For we read in Luke 22, verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. And from there we know that Judas would go on to make his deal with the chief priest to betray his master. Well, having claimed Judas, having influenced him to work his betrayal, Satan was not done. He wasn't satisfied with that one victory. He didn't want to settle for Judas alone. He also wanted Peter. In fact, he wanted each one of the disciples. He wanted them all to fall away from the Lord Jesus. And in the end, Satan desired nothing more than the destruction of the church of God. And that is what Luke makes clear on this last night before our Savior went to the cross. Yes, Satan had been active throughout the entire ministry of Christ, but more so now than ever, he was very busy. He was doing everything he could to wreak havoc and destruction. Also, when it comes to Peter, the fact that he would deny his Lord three times, Luke wants his readers to be clear that there was something else happening, there was something else taking place behind the scenes, something not visible to the human eye. And about this, I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme, the great high priest reveals the battle behind Peter's denial. And we're going to look at first the words of Satan, secondly the words of Peter, and finally the words of the high priest. Brothers and sisters, as he tries to continue disturbing the work that God was carrying out in this world, Satan sets his sight on a new target. And the Lord Jesus makes it clear who that next intended victim is in the words of our text. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now notice how Satan has not simply made a polite request. He hasn't subtly tried to sneak into the picture quietly. He's come in and he started making demands. Well, at first that sounds ridiculous. After all, who does Satan think he is? But that word that's used for demanded here in our text... It indicates that there's more going on than what we first may think. That word literally means to ask for something both with emphasis and with the implication that the one who's making the request has a right to do so. It's a demand made with force and the expectation that it's going to be granted. It means that this demand from Satan is no laughing matter at all, but is something very serious. After all, if Satan could not back up his demand in some way, he would never make that demand in the first place. And it shows that there's a certain amount of power and influence that Satan has in the world. He's not a harmless enemy making an outrageous demand. He's coming with some serious clout behind him. And we only have to look at Scripture to see the influence that Satan wields in this world of darkness. The Lord Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world in John 16, verse 11. He has the power to torment people using demons, 
sending these demons to carry out his destructive work in the life of humans. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is actively busy and working in this world, causing blindness so that people don't even see or turn to the light of the gospel. So when he makes a demand here in our text, there is a certain weight that lies behind it. But what adds even more to this demand of Satan is to whom this demand is made. There is only one to whom such a demand can be presented, and that is to God himself. So what Christ is saying here in our text is that Satan has demanded God let him have his next target so that he can carry out that work of hatred and destruction in his victim. And we can right away think, there's not a chance God would ever honor such a demand from Satan. It's out of the question, non-negotiable. However, brothers and sisters, we know from Scripture that it's not out of the question. After all, consider the events that are recorded for us in Job. Satan went to God. He wanted permission to put Job to the test. Satan wanted to have Job in his clutches. And God did give him permission. He was first allowed to take away everything that Job had. And eventually Satan was even given permission to take away Job's health. Everything about Job was left to Satan and his whims, with the only condition being that Satan could not harm Job's life. Well, that puts it in a new perspective. It's a scary thought, isn't it? To be given over to the one who wants nothing but evil and hatred for you. So when Satan presents this demand to God in our text, we're not dealing with a little tiny situation, we're dealing with a major situation. Because it can't be assumed that God's simply going to laugh at Satan and immediately ignore his demand. And especially, especially at this particular moment in the history of salvation, Satan could yet come to God with this demand because the ransom for God's people had not been paid. Christ had not yet gone to the cross. The sacrifice that set sinful man free had not been made. And therefore, while he still has time and he still has influence, Satan presents his demand to God. He says he wants to sift his next target like wheat. What's striking, though, is who Satan's next target actually is. At first, it seems straightforward. The Lord Jesus addresses Simon in the opening words of our text. However, perhaps you also notice that there's a footnote in the Bible when the Lord Jesus says, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Then each time you read that word you, it's a plural, referring to more than one. And it means that Satan has not just demanded to have Simon Peter 
he actually demanded to have all the disciples. Yes, he already had Judas Iscariot, but he wants the rest of them as well. And he wants them for cruel intentions. He wants to sift them like wheat. Sifting was something done after the crop had been taken off and threshed. Everything would be placed into a basket with reeds stretched crisscross across the bottom. And that basket would then be shaken very aggressively so that the grain would fall through and only the chaff or the straw would be left. Well, that's what Satan wanted to do with each one of the disciples. He wanted to sift them, meaning he wanted to put them to the test, see if they would remain faithful to their master. He wanted to challenge them, to push them, to prod them as much as he possibly could to see if they would reach that breaking point. And his goal was that they would fall away from Christ just like Judas had. And there is some evil reasoning behind Satan's demand as well. Because if he can get each one of the disciples to fall away, then there's no one to serve as apostles. Then there's no one to spread the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Then there would be no church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, Satan would be able to claim a victory. So when Jesus foretells the denial of Peter that will take place later that night, he's telling the disciples that the stakes are very high at this point. At stake is not just one disciple. At stake is the whole work that God has been doing right since the fall of man back in Eden. For we know the promise. God send, said that he would send one to crush the head of the serpent. But if there were no church left, because Satan had been allowed to test each one, and they had all failed the test, God's plan would have been thwarted. That last night, on the night when Christ was betrayed, the stakes were incredibly high. Satan was on the attack like never before. He was throwing all his best attempts into ending God's plan of salvation from having any effect. Now, thankfully, Satan can no longer come before God today. Satan can no longer make such a demand to God. For with the victory of Jesus Christ, he has lost his place in heaven. And yes, that is reason for great joy and celebration in the church. And that's also what the loud voice in Revelation 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But that also means that there's reason for the church today to be on guard. Because while Satan can no longer appear before God, he no longer has any basis on which to make a demand, that doesn't mean that Satan is a powerless enemy. The same loud voice in Revelation 12 cries out, But woe to you, O earth and sea! For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Brothers and sisters, Satan has been cast down to this world, and he is angry. His final defeat is certain. He knows that he can no longer win, 
But that doesn't mean that he just accepts that defeat. Satan's reasoning is that if he is going down, he is going to take as many down with him as possible. He still goes out on the attack today. It's striking that it's the Apostle Peter who would later write, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Brothers and sisters, Satan remains active today. No, he's not making demands to God, but he still is seeking someone to devour. He's looking for those in the church who are not sober-minded and who are not watchful. He's looking for those who open themselves up to his attack by playing games with their spiritual health and not taking it seriously enough. And as he's doing his work, he uses every possible resource at his control. Anything in this world, he's the prince of the world. His goal remains the same, wreaking havoc and destruction in the church of Jesus Christ. His goal is to take as many to hell with him as possible. He's still looking for ways to cause people to deny the faith, to turn away from Christ, to follow Satan as master. And he's not just busy out there. He's busy in here. Satan has the people in the world. He wants the people in the church. And he takes his mission very seriously. And our Lord Jesus Christ warns his disciples, but also the church today, so that they too think seriously about this matter. They need to take Satan seriously. And yes, Satan has limitations. Satan can only be in one place at one time. Satan is not all-knowing, but he's still busy. He is still active. He is still hard at work. Believers need to remember that there is still a great battle taking place, and they need to remember that in this battle, the stakes are as high as you will possibly ever get. It'll either be eternal life or eternal death. It will either be heaven or it will be hell. And knowing that truth, brothers and sisters, how seriously do you take the fact that Satan is looking for prey to devour in this world? Do we try to comfort ourselves by thinking, surely he has other targets, more important people? He'll leave me alone. There's so many others he can focus on instead. Well, if that's your thinking, you are in a very dangerous position. You are very vulnerable to his attack. Or are you constantly on guard against his prowling? To use the words of Peter in 1 Peter 5, are you sober-minded? Are you watchful? And again, it is striking that it was Peter who wrote those words. Because if anyone knew what it was like to not be fully aware of those matters, it was Peter. And we also have his words expressed in our text.
even though his master had just alerted Peter to the fact that behind everything happening lies the ancient foe, this doesn't deter Peter at all. He still thinks he's ready to go with his Lord wherever he goes and whatever may happen. He claims, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison or to death. And there's no hesitation on Peter's part here. If following Christ means going to prison, he's willing to suffer that. If following Christ means going all the way to death, then yes, he's willing to do that as well. Actually, this shows some growth on the part of Peter in terms of his overall understanding. Because in the past, when Jesus had foretold his death, none of the disciples had believed him, not even Peter. They didn't understand these things. We read that in Luke 18, verse 34. And that was the third time in which Christ had spoken about such matters. After three times, they still didn't get it. But if we consider Matthew's account of Jesus foretelling his death, and the first time he'd said it, it was something that greatly bothered Peter. He'd begun to rebuke Jesus, saying, it'll never happen. And Jesus had said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He recognized that Satan was using Peter to try and stop him from going to the cross. But while Peter had been unwilling and unable in the past to consider the fact that his beloved master was going to suffer death at the hands of the Jewish leaders, now that had changed. Now in our text, he realizes that it is a very real possibility. He'd witnessed some of the hatred that the leaders had for his master. And he starts to understand that his Lord's life is on the line because of this. And he starts to grasp that following Jesus, it may require him to put his own life on the line as well. After all, that was one of the qualifications for being a faithful disciple, according to Luke 14, verse 26. The Lord Jesus had said that a person had to hate even his own life. He had to be willing to lose it in order to follow Christ. So by speaking at this particular time in our text, Peter is trying to show that he is a qualified disciple of Jesus Christ. He's trying to prove that he has what it takes, that he measures up. But the problem is he doesn't recognize how serious the situation is. He fails to grasp the reality of his own weakness. And the Lord had actually made his weakness known to him. At the beginning of our text, he had two times addressed Peter using his original name, Simon. Not Peter the rock. Not Peter the one on whose confession Christ would build his church. No, it was Simon, the weak, the sinful man who is powerless in himself. still Peter ignores it. He's convinced himself he's ready to go all the way, even to the point of being in prison or to death. And eventually he would suffer such things. We read of his imprisonment already in Acts 12, and though he faced death, he was miraculously rescued by God at that time. But in the end, Peter would eventually die as a martyr for the sake of following Christ his Lord. And yet all those things would be much later. Before any of that would happen, Peter would show himself to be a very weak human. 
As Jesus foretells in the last verse of our text, he would deny his master three times. He would refuse to acknowledge that he even knew Jesus. He'd call down an oath upon himself, trying to convince everyone around that he did not know this Jesus of Nazareth. He had nothing to do with him. So when it was just Jesus and his disciples in that upper room, Peter was very brave. But when it came to the bigger crowd of those who hated the Lord, Peter was governed by the fear of man. His proud claim crashed all around him. Peter, the most vocal in saying that he would follow Christ in everything, he fell the farthest, and he denied his master. And he is an example to all believers of the fact that the saints at times do fall into serious sins. Peter is a testimony of the fact that we as people are very weak, and that our sworn enemies, the devil, this world, and our own flesh, they are very strong. That is how the Canons of Dort speaks about Peter as well in chapter 5, article 4. And brothers and sisters, the truth is that we are no different. When it comes down to it, we are no match for our sworn enemies, especially Satan the arch enemy of God, the ancient foe, do we really think that we are a match for him in our own strength? Well, perhaps we would never admit it publicly. We would never say that, "I, I think I can match up against him. Yet by our life, we easily put ourselves in his danger zone. We let ourselves go into situations where we know that we struggle, And yet we are convinced that this one time I can stand firm. Brothers and sisters, think about it for yourself. Where are you weak? What are those temptations that continually surround you and that you fall into time and again? We all have those things about us. But how often don't we convince ourselves that this one time I'm strong? This one time I'm going to beat the sworn enemy. And like Peter in our text, we make it sound so good. We psych ourselves up. We prepare as much as we can. And then like Peter, in spite of all, all our bravado, we fall. And perhaps even into serious sins. We're left filled with such shame at how in spite of our best, we still fell. Because of our weakness, we are seduced by and yield to the lusts of the flesh, to use the language of our confession in the canons of Dort. Peter, too, filled with such bravado, he didn't have it in him to stand. He's a reminder to us of our natural human weakness and that by ourselves we are not able to stand against our sworn enemies. Satan demanded to have Peter. And Peter, through his false confidence in the flesh, he placed himself in a a situation of weakness. It's incredibly humbling to think about. And if all our text included were the words of Satan, the words of Peter, then there'd be no real comfort or encouragement left for believers today. 
But thankfully, there is more. Because not only does Satan speak, and not only does Peter speak, but also our great high priest speaks. And it's with his words that we find comfort and direction. Satan demanded to have Peter and all the disciples so that he could put them into the test and see if they would remain faithful. And God did give them up for that test, but he did not leave them to Satan's power and influence without any guidance or help at all, but they received something of immense value, something that would absolutely ensure that they would not entirely fall away. In verse 32 of our text, the Lord Jesus tells Peter, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. It's an important line, congregation, because that was the test Satan put before Peter. He wanted Peter to turn away from Christ, to abandon his master entirely. Satan was not interested in half measures. It was not about a temporary denial of Christ in a moment of weakness. Satan wanted to take Peter all the way to hell by having him abandon his faith. But Jesus Christ steps in, and he reassures Peter. He says, I've prayed for you. In verse 32, the you is singular. It refers to Peter alone. Christ knows exactly what Satan's intention is, and therefore he does the best thing he can. He intercedes on Peter's behalf, and he asks God to protect Peter from the power and from the cunning of Satan. Christ asked God to hold Peter close to himself so that Peter would not fall away from the faith entirely. And that's what we read about in John 17. The words in that chapter are often called the high priestly prayer of Christ. And in that prayer, as we read, he does not only pray for himself, but he prays for those whom God has given to him. In verse 15 of that chapter, we read these words of Christ, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The Lord Jesus knows that his disciples, in fact, all his people, they will be under attack from the evil one. He knows that after he ascends into heaven, his people are going to need that special measure of protection against the craft and the fury of Satan. And therefore, as their great high priest, he asks his father to protect them. And he taught his disciples to pray for the same thing as well. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So the great high priest intercedes on Peter's behalf, but he teaches Peter to pray the same thing. Knowing his weakness, Christ steps in as the great mediator. As the great high priest, he will offer the sacrifice to pay for sin, and he will intercede for his weak disciple. But our text has more, because Christ knows that his prayer will be effective. It continues in verse 32, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers congregation, that is truly amazing. Christ knows 
that while Peter will act out of fear and he will deny him three times that very night, Peter is not going to be lost completely. He knows that his prayer on behalf of Peter is going to have the desired effect. But then he places a responsibility on Peter. He says, once you've turned back, that is, once you have repented of the fact that you did fall into sin, then you must use this experience to strengthen your brothers. It's not going to be an opportunity for Peter to boast in himself. It'll give him occasion to speak to his brothers about what Christ has done for him. He can tell his brothers, the other disciples, all believers, how Christ kept him faithful, how Christ forgave his sin. He can tell his brothers about the work of God and how God also in this situation overcame Satan and he preserved his child against Satan's anger. Peter would be able to experience in a very rich way the care and protection of God against the fiercest enemy of God's people. And that was something that needed to be shared, not only with believers at that time, but it still needs to be shared today, how God is the one who preserves his people, because such testimonies are of great encouragement to fellow believers about God's grace, about God's restoration. The glorious truth of the gospel is that this great high priest, Jesus Christ, he's not done his work. He continues interceding for God's people today. According to 1 John 2 verse 1, Jesus Christ is our advocate before the Father. He continues interceding before the Father on our behalf. He steps in with his precious blood each time that we sin. He defends us and reminds us that, or he reminds God that this sin also is washed away. But his work as advocate is not limited to pleading for forgiveness. It's also pleading for continued protection against our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. Think about that, brothers and sisters. Your great high priest is praying for you that you might remain faithful to him, that you will not deny him, and that in the face of all evil, you will continue to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. And just like Peter, we may have the full confidence that the intercession of Christ on our behalf it is both powerful and it is effective. For who will God listen to more than his own son? Who has more to offer to God than Jesus Christ, the one who gave up his life for us, the one whose blood was shed for us? And how much do we really need Christ to intercede on our behalf? For just as Satan increased his activity right before the Son of God went to the cross, so his anger only becomes hotter and hotter as the day of Christ's return comes closer. His attacks become even more vicious. He throws every last bit of energy and malice into his attempts at destroying the church. So then what a comfort it is for us to know that we have a great high priest who is always interceding for us. But it doesn't mean we sit back. Our great high priest also teaches us to pray the same thing. At this point, the words of Lord's Day 52, which summarize his teaching, are very fitting. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh do not cease to attack us. Will you, therefore, uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory? Thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ, Satan was not successful in his attack against the church. Peter and the disciples did not fall away from the faith, but they were preserved by God against the attack of the evil one. Jesus Christ went to the cross in humble submission to God's will, and he paid the penalty for our sins. Satan can no longer make any demands. He no longer has a claim to any one of God's people. And our great high priest continues to intercede for us, and he will do so until all his people reach the fullness of his kingdom. The time when all his enemies are conquered, when all his people together with him enjoy the fullness of life in the kingdom of God. Yes, though he will continue his attempts, Satan will never be successful in his goal. And that's not because we ourselves are so strong. It's because we live secure forever in the love and the protection of our great high priest. Amen.